We're in Psalm 3 today. We're in Psalm 3. As I've mentioned before, the Psalms give us heartfelt, relevant guidance on how to live. Right? As we look into the Psalms, I've mentioned before, the entire book of Psalms is all about painting a picture for us of what it looks like to have a life centered on God. And as we come to Psalm 3, we find a testimony of one who has found his way, by God's grace, from despair to delight. One who was facing severe trouble, and yet who found delight and comfort and hope in his God. It's easy for us to focus on times of trouble when we see them. But what we need most in those times, and frankly, what we need most in the good times, is to set our minds and our hearts on the truth of God. We need to set our minds and our hearts and our hopes on God Himself, because He is our life, He is our peace. He is our joy, and He is our security. Psalm 3 is a powerful example of that, of how a life centered on God thinks, how it responds to hardships, and how it finds its way from despair to delight. And it is very instructive for us as we navigate the troubles of our own lives together. And so I want us to look at Psalm 3 this morning, but I want us first to start in Psalm 2. A couple weeks ago, you looked at Psalm 2. I wasn't here. Trevor led in that. And I don't want us to forget the context of Psalm 2 as we go into Psalm 3, because it reinforces the truth that God is on His throne and He is in charge. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, 
my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Well, as we've already seen, it doesn't take more than a moment or two of honest thought for us to dismiss any notion that being a Christian makes all our troubles go away. And those who have preached that message have been proven to be liars. Every day we are confronted with the reality that life is full of troubles. But how are we supposed to respond to them? What do God's people need in times of crisis and in impossible situations? Where do we find hope and encouragement in times of crisis? How do we encourage others who are going through those impossible situations? Well, in reality, sometimes what needs to happen is that those who are in sin need to be rebuked and they need to be brought to repentance. Sometimes that is what's going on. But not every crisis is a result of our own sin. When it is, we need to be brought to repentance, and we can. But in every case, regardless of why we are suffering, when we suffer, God's people need to be comforted and encouraged in the Lord. We need to be reminded about the character and work of God, and then we need to be instructed in how to respond in a way that glorifies God and trusts Him. Psalm 3 does all of that for us. It's a song of encouragement to those who are in crisis, a song of hope who have heavy hearts. It is a song of spiritual deliverance to those who are trapped in impossible situations. And I'm not saying impossible to exaggerate. What David faced in Psalm 3 is truly an impossible situation. Psalm 3 is a model of moving from despair in our trials to delight in the Lord. It's a psalm of pastoral counseling for those who are in trouble. And in this psalm, we see four basic truths, four realities of life that lead us from crisis to confident hope. We see in this psalm what we know and what we're supposed to do with what we know so that we might find unshakable assurance in every circumstance. Do you believe that unshakable assurance is possible in every circumstance? Every circumstance. Psalm 3 shows us that it is, and it shows us why. So, the first reality that we see in Psalm 3 is actually not an encouraging one, at least not at first. This is the negative one. The first reality that we see in Psalm 3 is that trouble is real. 
It's real. This psalm begins in the crisis and it acknowledges the trouble. Look at the title of the psalm. That's the little superscript above verse 1. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Do you know what that circumstance was all about? You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 19 to get the whole context. The essence of the story is that David's own son, Absalom, had secretly planned and effectively executed a coup in the kingdom that drove David from his throne out of the city. It ravished his household and it caused David to flee in humiliation and fear. It was treason. And that treason involved not just Absalom, but a whole multitude of people with much planning, many military leaders, and even some of the closest advisors to David himself. It was an overwhelming insurrection. So when David says in verse 1, O oh Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, he isn't exaggerating. He's not using poetic license here. This is real. This is the reality of his situation, and it is dire. And what makes it worse is that those who are rising against him are taking shots at him personally. This is personal with him. And there is a personal attack on David. So he says in verse 2, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Those who were pushing David out of his city viewed them as the arm of God's judgment in his life. And it's as if his enemies are telling him that he has been forsaken by God himself. Now, why would they say that? Well, here's where we need some more context for David's situation. We need to understand that all of this dysfunction in David's family that has led to this actually has a root. Do you know what it is? Have you seen it before? Do you know the connection here? What is happening in Psalm 3, what happens in 2 Samuel 14 through 19, is the result of David's sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David had sinned grievously. Nathan the prophet had confronted him. David had repented and was forgiven. But the consequences still remain. And that happens, doesn't it? We can be forgiven and yet sometimes still have to bear the consequences of our sin. So David had told Nathan, or, or excuse me, Nathan had told David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, here are the consequences that he's going to have to face because of his sin. He says, now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, 
but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. That's not God being ungracious. That's not God being harsh. That is God telling David, there are going to be consequences for your sin. And so David accepts that. He acknowledges that. He knows that that is coming. He knows that this is the fulfillment of what God had said, and he does not sugarcoat the situation. He is honest about it. He recognizes his circumstances. He knows this is bad. And what's more, he knows that it is a result of his own sin. So this is about as bad as it can possibly get, right? His life is threatened. He doesn't know the outcome. And he knows this is a result of sin in his life, even though he is repentant. But what we are going to see in the rest of the psalm is that understanding that doesn't drive David away from God. It drives him to God. That is important. That is crucial. He knew he deserved God's punishment. He knew that he had brought these circumstances on himself in a certain way. But he also knew that he was forgiven. And so he knew he could run to God for help. Let me ask you this. Is it okay for a believer who is facing the consequences of his own sin still to pray to God for protection and deliverance? Is that okay? Yes, it is. In fact, that's what we're supposed to do. And God isn't going to sit there and say, No, my child, you brought this on yourself. You made your bed, now lie in it. That's not the attitude of God toward David or toward you. We are meant in our troubles and in our anxieties not to ignore it or to downplay it, but to run to God for help. So, what is the adversity or the anxiety in your life today? Whatever it is, and for whatever reason you think you're facing it, you have a refuge in your God. You are meant to run to Him for help. And that is exactly what David did. And we're going to see how that played out and what that did to his own thinking and to his heart and how he did all of that. Now, I don't know if David got overly emotional as he fled the city, as he fled from his own son. I expect that he did get emotional. But that's not part of the story, is it? What we do know is that as he fled from that city, he got theological. He got very theological. He did not let his discouragement or his fear get the best of him. He didn't fall into a, a pit of depression, at least not for long. He found refuge in the truth about his God. Listen, when the storms of life overtake you, don't tell me how you feel. I know how you feel. We know how you feel. We've been there, right? Don't tell me how you feel. Tell me what you know. Your feelings are not solid ground. 
especially in a crisis. But the truth of God, the truth of God, ministered to you by His Word and through His people, that is an anchor for your soul. That is what you need. As David moves into the rest of this psalm, in the midst of his turmoil, it's as if he, he stops and he says, hold on, wait. Let's think about God for a moment. Where is God in all of this? That's the question we need to be asking. Because there is a direct correlation between our thinking and our behavior. There is a direct correlation between what we think and the stability we experience. Your life is being tossed about. You're falling into a pit of depression. It's because your mind is in the wrong place. You need to reset your thinking. This is why gathering with the saints under the preaching of the Word and making the Word of God the center of our lives and of our homes is a non-negotiable priority for God's people. You cannot live without it. We need to saturate our minds and our hearts with the life-giving and life-changing truth of God's Word. Even more so now, right? As we live in the midst of a spiritual downfall all around us. Our stability can only come from the Word applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. If we live our lives by feelings, we will never be stable. But if we anchor our minds on the truth of God and His Word, we have a sure foundation that will hold fast in every circumstance. And that's what we see as we move into verses 3 and 4. At the lowest point in David's life, the most painful and fearful moment. He acknowledges first that, yes, this trouble is real. This is a, a real situation and it's bad. But then he turns his thoughts toward God and what he knows about the character of God and the work of God. And in that we learn secondly, not only is trouble real, but God is enough. God is enough. What does David know about his God? What is it about God that changes everything and guides him through this life-threatening crisis? Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I love that. But you. That is a strong and emphatic contrast to verses 1 and 2. All these lies, all these attacks, all these discouragements coming from the enemy. But you. And with those two words, it's as if David has already stepped onto higher ground. And planted his feet on a rock. But you, O Lord. You notice that's in capital letters? You know what that means? It means the Hebrew word that is used for God's name there, for the Lord's name, is Yahweh. 
the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has a long and perfect track record of being with his people and delivering his people and carrying them to their intended goal every single step of the way without fail. It's the covenant name of God that reminds us of how God works among and with his people. What does he know about this Jehovah? You, O Lord, are a shield about me. That speaks of protection, right? The idea here is being completely surrounded by his protection on every side. It's a reminder that there is nothing that can touch the people of God but what God himself ordains or what God himself allows for his good purposes and for his intended end. God is the great and sovereign and powerful protector of his people. And then David says, You, O Lord, are my glory. My glory. That is, you are the glorious one. You are the one in whom is all my glory. You are the one in whom I boast. You see, David didn't have to sit on his throne in order to be at peace. He doesn't know if he's ever going to sit on it again. But he doesn't need to. Because his glory and his fulfillment are in God alone. He didn't need to be delivered from his earthly trouble in order to be stable and joyful. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. But he knows that when God is his glory and his boast, then everything else in life can wash away. We can lose everything else. Because our value is fixed and our fulfillment is found in Him alone. And then David adds, because of that, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. The lifter of my head. That speaks of His encouragement. Right? As if your head is bound in, bowed in sorrow and He comes and gently lifts it up. Why? So that you can stick your nose in the air and be proud again? No. So that you can lift your eyes and look at Him. He is the encourager. He is the comforter of His people. When we are overtaken in trouble, what we need is to look to our God. He is everything we need in every circumstance. Now, that is what David knows. What does David do with what he knows? Look at verse 4. Knowing all of this, what does he do? This knowledge drives David to the most important thing. See what it is? Prayer. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Think about the noise and the chaos of David's life in those moments. 
I may have been driven from my throne on my hill. But God is still on His throne on His holy hill. And so I cried aloud to the Lord. Thousands are lifting their voices against me, we saw in verse 2. But my cry to you outsoars them all. And you hear me above the crowd. This is a focused and vocalized prayer that articulates and clarifies his complaints and his fears to the Lord. You know, it's good for us to pray, right? Anybody want to deny that this morning? I don't think so. But it is good for us to articulate, to verbalize those prayers. Even when we are not feeling very holy, we can articulate our prayers. We can cry out to the Lord for help in every situation. And we are promised that God can and He will care for us when we cast our cares on Him. Now, when we think about that, we need to understand that there are actually four different ways God answers prayer, right? Sometimes He answers with a yes. We like that. Sometimes He answers with a no. We struggle a little bit more with that. But then sometimes He answers with a not yet. And then at other times, he answers with, not as you asked. Our circumstances may not always turn out the way we want, but when we cast our cares on the Lord, they will always turn out for our good according to his sovereign purposes and his loving kindness for us. Don't think that because we pray that God's going to make everything easy and good. It may not happen, but God will carry you through and God will work his perfect plan for you. And that perfect plan is good with eternity in mind. So in the midst of his crisis, David fixes his eyes on what he knows about God. You know, it's not uncommon for some to have the attitude of, well, I don't need to know God, or I don't need to know all the answers. Just tell me how to, and then fill in the blank. I get that a lot as a military chaplain, because I get a lot of non-Christians who come to the holy man looking for advice, and I try to give them the gospel, and they don't want it. They just want me to fix their marriage, and I can't do that, right? But it happens even with Christians from time to time, too, doesn't it? I, I don't need to get all theological. Just tell me how to fix my problem. If you come to me and tell me that, I'm going to give you a resounding no. <laughs> Get theological. Get theological. Get into the Word. Because what you know about God will transform how you live and how you handle and respond to the troubles you face. Because you realize that deliverance is not mission number one, right? Knowing God is mission number one. That's what we need to know. And if we look for answers and comfort from this world, and if we look for it from man's limited wisdom, we will be disappointed. We will be disillusioned. And we will be like Peter, who was walking on the water, who took his eyes off Christ and immediately sank, right? Sometimes that's how we live our lives, because we've taken our, our eyes off Christ. 
in times of trouble and in times of despair, we must look up to God and we must remember His sovereign power, His divine goodness, and His loving kindness. And then, no matter how bad things get in this life, we can rest and we can rejoice because our lives and our eternal well-beings are in His tender and trustworthy hands. That's what David was doing in these moments. Fix your minds on this, that God is always sovereign over every moment of your life, that He is able and He is willing to protect you and to deliver you. And He will not always deliver us from the trial, but He will always deliver us through the trial. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod, well, that speaks of discipline, doesn't it? And your staff, they comfort me. And that leads us to pray to cry out to the Lord, to cast our burden on Him because he know, we know He cares for us and He will answer. And that leads us to our next important point. Trouble is real, yes, but God is enough. Therefore, in verses 5 and 6, we learn that peace is possible. David has just anchored his mind in what he knows about who God is and what he does. And he has cast his burden on Him. And the next thing we read in verse 5 is this, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. <laughs> Remember, he's fleeing for his life and the results of a military coup in his own government, right? And he says, I lay down and slept. This makes me think of those amazing words in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What else but the unspeakable peace of God could allow David to sleep in such a terrible and, ter terrible and fearful circumstance. But what David experienced is not unique to David. That is the testimony of everyone who finds their refuge in God alone. When we are armed with the power of God's protection, then fear and panic have no sway over us. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And on that rock, David says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That was literal, by the way. There were thousands of people who had set themselves against David, and he says, I will not fear. As one preacher noted, Absalom had the crowd, but David had God. 
and God by Himself makes a majority. These people are not just aligned against David, they are aligned against God. And God had made a promise to preserve David, and he will keep that promise. And so David's statement here is not a statement of arrogance or self-confidence. His faith is, is in God and in his strength alone, and he is submitted to God's purpose. And notice, this is a determined choice on David's part. Do you think he felt strong in those moments? No, I think he felt fearful. I think he felt exposed. I think he felt humiliated. Do you think he had a smile on his face as he ran from his home? I don't think so. His world came crashing down. No doubt for a moment his strength failed or at least shook. His spirit trembled. That is how he felt. But he was anchored in the truth of his God. He fixed his mind on him. He didn't, he didn't know if he was going to return to his throne or not. But that didn't matter ultimately. His hope was in his God. And so he knew that even if his kingdom failed, even if he lost his life, he was still in the capable hands of his sovereign God. And his peace came before the outcome was reached. His peace came in the midst of of the crisis. You see, to go to sleep is an acknowledgement that God is in control. It's an acknowledgement that God can manage without us. Lord, this situation is too big for me. But it isn't for you. And you don't need me. So I'm going to rest. I'm going to trust. We read in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear, though life gets a little bit uncomfortable. Is that what it says? We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, though the entire earth fall apart, we will not fear. Because our minds are fixed on God and what He is doing. So we can sleep in peace because we trust, we rest in Him. So beloved, stop being anxious about what happens in Washington. Stop being fearful about what is going to happen with a pandemic. Stop worrying about where our ungodly culture is headed. You already know where it's headed, but you know how this story ends too. Our hope and stability are not in those things. Fix your mind on what you know. Look again at Psalm 2 and remind yourself of the fact that God is on His throne. And no human scheme can prevail against him and his eternal plan. I don't care what the world tells you, beloved. You are on the right side of history. And not only are you on the right side of history, you are on the right side of eternity. 
That brings us finally to verses 7 and 8. Trouble is real, yes, but God is enough, and therefore peace is possible. And finally, victory is sure. Victory is sure. In these verses, David gives us a glimpse of the future and of the big picture of what God is doing. You see, it's good to feel peace in the midst of the crisis, but our hope comes also from knowing that there's an end to it. Knowing what is next, knowing that there is something good to come, either in this life or in the next. We need to know how this is going to end. That is the basis of our hope in God. Our hope as Christians is not a shot in the dark. It is confidence in the finished plan of Christ. So, in verse 7, David says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Those are fighting words right there. That's a declaration of victory. Well, it's a declaration of war first. And then it's a declaration of victory. It's a battle cry. And his imagery there describes mortal blows, mortal wounds. And in the original language, it is described as if it's a finished action, though it's still in the future. He's still looking ahead, but it is, it is based on God's character. It is based on God's promise, and therefore it's as good as done. The enemy is defeated. The evil one is conquered. The eternal plan of God and his victory is sure. Psalm 68.1 says, God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. All God needs to do is stand up and the battle is over. That's the God you follow if you're in Christ. That speaks of his vengeance over all unrighteousness and on all his enemies. When we look at the things that grieve us most about our current climate, our current culture, and we consider hundreds of thousands of souls sent into eternity because of the, the abortion industry, how does a Christian respond to that? We cry out, O oh Lord, how long? Right? And this answers that prayer. God will avenge. God will bring justice. This speaks of an ultimate and future judgment that is coming on all who have rejected God, coming on all who have stood against Him, coming on all who are unrighteous before Him. But in the midst of it all, we learn that God is a patient God, isn't He? There is no reason other than His loving kindness, mercy, and patience. There's no other reason for Him not to bring that judgment down right now. But He waits. He waits. Why? So that His people can respond. So that sinners can repent and find salvation. But he may wait. But he will have his victory in his time. And those who are his people will find this to be a statement of confidence and joy 
Those who are not his people will find this to be a statement of condemnation. But for the believer, this is a reminder that all of our trials are temporary, right? That there is a hope for the future. That is because of what David says in verse 8, which gives us the big picture and general principle of who God is and what he is doing. He says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I need to bring this to a close. We don't have time to go through all of this, but that phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, is an important phrase in Scripture. One of the most notable places it was used is by Jonah as he wallowed in the belly of the fish. Another crisis, right? But this is a statement of the character of God. He is the God of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is on your people. It's a statement of the big picture of the deliverance of God's people from their sin and from the wrath of God. This is a reminder that whatever happens on this earth, those who are in Christ have the salvation of the Lord and the blessing of God. See, David lifted his eyes from his earthly circumstances to the heaven, heavenly reality. Reminded that God's plan for his people and God's promise to his people is a complete plan and promise. And it will be accomplished. Therefore, knowing his sovereign work in the past and his finished work in the future, we can know that God will faithfully preserve His people here and now. And He will bring us to our glorious home, our glorious end. And we see Him face to face. Believers, look up. Look up. Look up from your trouble and see the big picture. There is an end coming, and God wins. As one preacher testified, your adversity, even your ignorance, your sin cannot alter or destroy God's eternal plan. Therefore, we will not fall out of love with Christ. We will not lose our salvation. We will persevere in faith until the end, even though we sin. And we will not suffer beyond what we are, by God's grace, able to endure. That's your testimony, Christian. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. That is, and should be, and can be the testimony of every Christian. God is enough. He is all we need to sustain us and give us peace and strength and joy in every trial. So, seek Him. And in Him, He gives us peace for today and victory for tomorrow. So, hope in Him and rest in Him and rejoice in Him. Friends, there are only two kinds of people in this passage. Those who 
belong to God and those who are his enemies. God's people, God's enemies. The promise for protection and glory and comfort and salvation and all that is good that we see in this passage is a promise that belongs only to God's people. There is a promise in this passage that is given to God's enemies, and that's verse 7. You strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. That's judgment. And the judge who sits on God's holy hill in verse 6 is identified in Psalm 2 and then in the New Testament as Jesus Christ himself. What all of that means is that whether you are God's people or God's enemies depends on where you stand with Jesus today. He is either your Savior and Lord or he is your judge. There's no in-between. And Psalm 3 makes no bones about it. He will deliver his people and he will judge his enemies. So, if you are not a Christian this morning, if you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in the merciful hands of Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life, then I beg you, turn to him today. Look to Christ as your refuge and strength. Salvation belongs to him and you need it in him. You will find it only in him. Christians, one reason our problems are often seem so big is because we're focused on our problems, right? But when we look at the power and the plan and the goodness of God, when we fix our minds on what we know about Him, who He is, what He's up to, what He has promised to do, then our problems don't seem so intimidating anymore, do they? We're actually not all that worried about who is or is not in Washington, the White House or the Capitol building. We're actually not that fearful about the events of the world. That doesn't mean we're careless. I don't mean that, but it's all put back in its place, isn't it? And so I leave you with these words of encouragement from one Puritan writer who says this. Do not fear. His arm encircles you. His power protects you. His eye is ever upon you. His ear is ever open to your cry. Nothing can harm you without permission, for he will make all things work together for your good. He will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.